Matthew chapter 6, and we'll be starting in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is turned into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You may be seated. All right, if you have your Bibles, you can open them up or turn them on to Matthew chapter 6, where we are continuing to walk through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we looked at what Jesus had to say about our money and our possessions. And this week, we're kind of going to the other end of the spectrum. Jesus isn't talking about abundance. He's talking about want. And specifically, he's talking about the worry that we might not have everything that we need at some point in the future. So this text is obviously a text about anxiety. He says three, th- three times, therefore, do not be anxious. And he, he applies this in a way that deals with our material needs. But the way that Jesus teaches, it applies to all kinds of anxiety. Because we have anxiety over material things. We have anxiety over health. We have anxiety over relationships. We have anxiety over losses. We have anxiety over a myriad of things, and as you've heard us pray and and talk about, and maybe you've been involved in some emails, I feel like we're in a week, a a unique week in a season here where the anxiety is just high for a number of reasons. And so it is, it's extra important that we hear what it is that Jesus has to say about anxiety. So anxiety is a really complex issue, and, uh, and, and we don't want to be as naive about it as I was as a young husband when my wife was anxious, and I, I told her, sweetie, you need to stop it. <laughs> this is not logical. You're worrying about things out of your control, things you, you, that aren't, you, the worrying is not going to affect anything, so you need to stop being anxious. <laughs> well, after saying that, not only was she still anxious, she now felt stupid for feeling anxious. <laughs> So that didn't do any good. That's not how we want to talk about anxiety. We want to recognize that anxiety is a very complex issue. There certainly are, there are genetic pieces to it, there are chemical pieces to it, there are environmental pieces to it, and there are even cultural pieces to it. I mean, most of you have, have heard the United States is likely the most anxious culture that has ever existed. I, I don't even really know if that's like a debated thing anymore. The LA Times calls the USA the United States of Anxiety. There was a book written a couple years ago by a British transplant living uh, in LA 
and she titled her book, America the Anxious. And all the data that we're receiving from places like the American Psychiatric Association is is telling us that not only are we the most anxious society that probably has ever existed, we're becoming, we're fastly becoming more and more anxious as a culture. And what's really interesting to me is that if you poll Americans about their stress and their anxiety, do you know what the the three top things are that they would say, that we would say we're anxious about? Physical safety, health, and finances. And I say that's really interesting because probably we live in the healthiest, wealthiest, and safest society that has ever existed. So it starts to feel like the more we get the things that we're anxious about, the more anxious we become about those things. And actually, in in the book that I referenced, America the Anxious by Ruth Whitman, uh, her, her whole thesis is that more, the more you make happiness your goal, the pursuit of happiness in America, the less likely you are to get it. That's her whole thesis. We're unhappy and we're anxious because our goal is happiness. And she has a lot of, a lot of secular data out there to, to support her. Um, psychologists at UC Berkeley, they wrote, paradoxically, the more people valued and were encouraged to value happiness as a separate life goal, the less happy they were. So the psychologists at UC Berkeley are saying, the more happiness is your supreme value, the less likely you are to be happy. So why is it that that's the case? And I hope that as we, as we walk through this passage at the end, it's going to be very clear why it is that the more we value happiness, the less likely we are to actually be happy. And if you're here today... And you battle anxiety. I want you to see in this passage that Jesus isn't just coming and saying, stop it. He's giving us some very helpful truths and reasons why we can have hope in our anxiety. So in our passage this morning, I just want to do two simple things. I want to look at how Jesus is defining anxiety. And I want to look at what Jesus tells us is our hope and anxiety. So defining it and our hope in it. Those are the goals. First, defining anxiety. I, I think Jesus gives us a pretty good definition in verse 34. Jesus says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So the technical definition of anxiety is an apprehension over an impending future situation. That's a lot. An apprehension over an impending future situation, which is pretty much exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, don't worry about tomorrow. So anxiety is worry about tomorrow. And I know I said this a few months ago, but anxiety is fundamentally a forward-thinking curse. So you contrast that with depression. Depression tends to be a backward-thinking curse, a, a concern, a deep concern over what could have been or what should have been, and in some cases, a concern of what won't be in the future because of something that happened in the past. But depression is generally rooted in the past. Anxiety, on the other hand, is a forward-thinking curse. It's a, a deep, deep concern, an apprehension over what might happen in the future. Obviously, generally things that we can't control. And in really serious cases, we feel deep anxiety and we don't even know what it is that we're anxious over. We don't even know what it is that we want to control. We don't know where it comes from. And Jesus is saying in this text that our anxiety, it is rooted somewhere. It's rooted 
and a lack of trust that our heavenly father is going to take care of our tomorrow. So if you, if you write in your Bible, there's a lot there in the word tomorrow. Underline tomorrow. You can highlight tomorrow. We're going to come back to this today and tomorrow. That's, that's what Jesus is getting at, I think, in his definition of anxiety. Most of you know I grew up here, and my, my family is here. And when I drive to my brother's house, um, I, I have to go through what probably is the roughest intersection in all of Orlando. And two months ago, we were sitting at that red light, and I had a couple kids in the car, and an older kids, and we'd never talked about rough parts of city versus safer parts of the city. And one of my older kids said, Daddy, I really don't feel safe right now. And my four-year-old over there couldn't be more content. <laughs> he, he had no, no problems being where we were, and, and I think a lot of it is just that he knew Daddy was driving. Daddy's driving. I see Godzilla outside of the car. It's okay, because Daddy's driving. My older kids, on the other hand, they didn't have all that much confidence that daddy driving was going to make a difference. So their anxiety was beginning to swell up. And I think this kind of gets at the heart of what Jesus is talking about to us. Because anxiety, at the end of the day, it's not trusting that our Father in heaven has tomorrow. And, and here's the hard part. The hard part is to look at people who struggle with anxiety and say, yes, it's a sin. And because I could imagine some of you being here and saying, well, Jim, I, you're, you've said there are chemical pieces to this. You've said there are environmental pieces to this. You've said there are genetic pieces to this, cultural pieces to this. If there's anybody in this room who doesn't want to be anxious, it's me. And now you're saying on top of all that, it's sin. I feel really beat down and really discouraged right now. And if that's you, I want you to hear me say that I agree with everything that you would say to me in that moment and I want you to hear that because it's sin there's hope because of anxiety we're like a a weird personality quirk like being awkward or talking too much the bible has no hope for that in this life (laughs) but if anxiety is truly a sin there are great promises for the hope that we can have in this life And we're going to look at that hope in just a minute. But before we get there, I I need to be really clear about three things Jesus is not saying about anxiety in this world. So the first thing that Jesus is not saying is that we can't grieve or be scared. Jesus is not saying we can't grieve or or be scared. He's making this contrast between, between today and tomorrow. And I don't think he's saying, you know, if it's more than 24 hours in the future, you know, that's a sin to worry about that. But if it's, if it's 24 hours or less, you're good. (laughs) You know, I think that there, there really is something, there's a different kind of emotion for today and tomorrow. There are different places in the emotional wheelhouse. And the way that I'm going to differentiate today and tomorrow is by calling them the actual versus the potential. Okay, so there, there are potential worries that we don't know if these things are even going to happen. We have largely no control over the potential. That's what Jesus is calling anxiety. Okay, the things that are real and upon us today, that's the actual. And, and that fundamentally is a different emotion. It's not anxiety usually, or, or at least only. It's grief and fear. And Jesus has a lot to say about grief and fear, none of which we're going to get to in our text today because it's anxiety. But we need to see them as different emotions to really appreciate what Jesus is saying here. So because I think this is really important, I'm going to flesh this out in two different ways to to help us understand the difference between the potential and the actual, the today and the tomorrow. Uh, When I was growing up, 
all, really up until fairly recently, I had a crippling fear of public speaking. Okay? It, it actually still rears its head every now and then, but I've, I've learned some tricks to be able to hide it really well. But a crippling fear of speaking in front of people. And there is a fundamental difference in the, the anxiety that I felt of what might happen when I stand up in front of a bunch of people and the sheer terror that I did experience when I'm actually standing up in front of a bunch of people. You know, it feels like the same thing, but they are two different emotions. One's anxiety and one is deep fear. Or maybe a more serious way to, to differentiate the two. There's a difference between being anxious over what the CT scan might say and the doctor actually saying it's cancer. Jesus gives us healthy categories to be able to grieve what is actually upon us. He's not, he's saying don't be anxious about tomorrow, but he's not saying that we have to be emotionless about today. I mean, my goodness, look at Jesus in the garden. <laughs> Jesus was sweating blood. And every doctor would tell you that there, there's a, that is a known physical response to extreme stress. And we know Jesus didn't sin, so that's got to be something different than a, the kind of anxiety he's telling us not to feel. Because in that moment, that wasn't, that wasn't a maybe, <laughs> you know. That was an actual he knew that he was going to go on the cross and receive the full wrath of God for the sins of humanity. And so what he was doing in that moment was grieving. He was stressed over what was upon him at that moment. So that's the actual and the potential. Jesus is not saying that we're not to grieve and be scared. Secondly, Jesus is not saying that we can't think about tomorrow. And if you grew up with the King James Version, you may remember that the King James says, take no thought for the morrow. Take no thought for the morrow. So people would say, well, you just don't even think, it's wrong to think about tomorrow. And the problem with that is that 600 years ago, when the King James Version was written, take no thought for the morrow simply meant don't worry. <laughs> the problem is that over the past 600 years, our language has changed profoundly. So the way we speak is different. It doesn't mean you can't think about tomorrow. One commentator said Jesus isn't condemning thought or even forethought. He's condemning anxious thought. Okay, there's a difference. And so when is it exactly that forethought becomes anxious thought? And the answer is when we begin to dwell on and feel apprehension over the potential and not the actual. When I was growing up, my dad would, would often tell me this quote from Winston Churchill. Apparently at the end of his life, he said, if I could live my life all over again, I wouldn't worry about all the things that didn't happen. <laughs> you know, th that's the potential. But when we dwell on the potential and feel apprehension over the potential, that's when it's gone from forethought over to this thing called anxiety. And at the end of the day, Anxiety is a product of our desire for control. Our desire to control things that just aren't in our control. And 
we need to be able to discern what are the things that are within our control that we should be faithful in and think about and what are the things that are beyond our control that we need to be okay leaving to God. So we can control maybe what percentage of our income we put away for retirement, but we can't control how much that's going to be every month. You know, we can't control what the market's going to do. We can't control what inflation is going to be when we want to retire. So certain things we can control and that's good forethought, but there are other things that we just can't worry about. You know, we can control how we, how we treat our body. We can control the things we eat, the way we exercise, but largely we can't control whether we get cancer or have a stroke or have a heart attack. There's some things that we can put some forethought into that's wise, but there are other things that are just outside of our control that Jesus is saying, leave that part to God. That's the tomorrow piece. Angela has this quote that my wife, Angela, that I love. She says, most of us, we're tempted to think that life is one long continuum of security and peace with little blips of trials and troubles along the way. But the reality is that that life is one long continuum of trials and troubles with little blips of peace and security along the way. That's what we need to understand. And I think that contributes a lot to the way that America views our, our anxiety. But to communicate that, let's look at the third thing that Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying there will not be trouble. I mean, in John 16, he couldn't be more clear. In this life, you will have trouble. And there's something about the United States of America because we have, we have such a great value of controlling our world and being able to provide peace and security and happiness when most of the rest of human history and much of the rest of the world today, they've, they've largely let go of, of peace and security and and some kind of happiness in this life so their anxiety goes lower. But the more we value these things, the more we make these things the end all, the more anxiety is going to increase because those things are fleeting. And before I move on, I want to do one more thing to hopefully define anxiety well. We've talked about what it's not, but I want to be clear about where it comes from. So I said anxiety is worrying, dwelling, feeling apprehension over the potential, over the things that may or may not happen, the things that are out of our control. But we have to realize that the whole reason this world went haywire is because of control. So the Bible says that before humanity even existed, that there was a coup, a rebellion in heaven, that there was the greatest of angels, Lucifer, and he wanted control. He wanted to be God, and he led a rebellion. He lost that rebellion. He and his heavenly host were cast down to this earth where they currently comprise most of the evil that we can't see. And then according to the Bible, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, Lucifer, who we now call Satan, came into the garden trying to get us to believe the same kind of lie, telling Adam and Eve why is it that God won't let you eat that fruit? Because he doesn't want you to be like him. You can be like God. You can have control. And they go and they eat. And that is where all the anxiety that we experience on this earth comes from. We challenged God's control. And so now we experience the repercussions of our control rebellion. But Jesus doesn't just leave us there. Jesus doesn't leave us here. He gives us very clear hope 
in our anxieties. And that's what I want to do with the rest of our time. What is our hope in our anxiety? So I'll be honest, the first time I read this passage, I was kind of thinking, Jesus, you feel like you're just saying, stop it. (laughs) Just don't be anxious three times. Therefore, don't be anxious. But I realized that as Jesus often does, he's giving us much more than just a to-do. He's giving us the why behind the what. But to see it, we have to put our Bible, our Bible reading skills to, to good use. Because in our passage, we have three therefores. And, and we all know when we see a therefore, what are we supposed to ask? What's the therefore, therefore? Okay, so when Jesus says, don't be anxious, he says, therefore, don't be anxious. There's something that precedes these therefores that's the reason that we shouldn't be anxious. And so I want to look at our hope by looking at what precedes the three therefores in this passage. All right, the first therefore is actually the first word in our passage. So that points us to verse 24, right before our passage. Verse 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So our first hope is that God is in control. God is in control. We we have a choice of our masters. We're going to be mastered by something. We can be mastered by money and possessions, things that will rot and rust and be stolen, and ultimately that master will never love us back. Or we can be mastered by God, who will always be there and never stop loving us. And this, this is the part of the Christian faith where the rubber meets the road. Because there is a big difference between believing in God and believing God. There's a big difference between just believing in a God or in a God who's in control and really believing that God is in control of our life. I, there's a podcast that I've been listening to uh, that cro- part, of, part of the podcast chronicles the rise and fall of a very, very well-known pastor in the United States, a name most of you would, would know very well. And so this, this pastor, he started, he planted a church from scratch, and very quickly this church was one of the largest, if not the largest church in his city. He was seeing thousands and thousands of people coming to the church, baptizing very famous people. He became somewhat of a superstar in his own right until one day, very unexpectedly, he resigned due to profound moral failings and soon after that committed suicide. It's a really sad story of incredible gifting and profound public failing. And the people who are putting this podcast together, they, they're Christians, so... Th- they're being very gracious, they're, they're being very truthful, but they're being very fair, and their goal is to have a redemptive arc to this story. And they're interviewing, in this podcast, former staff members of this church, and they're asking, when did things go so wrong? Like, what, what happened that caused such a dramatic turn of events? And one of them said this, the pastor didn't functionally believe that God was in control. And I want you to hear this really clearly one more time. The pastor didn't functionally believe that God was in control. He felt the weight of all this church was on his shoulders. He felt the weight of who people thought he was and who they wanted him to be on his shoulders. And the anxiety that that produced led him down a spiraling tunnel of substance abuse, infidelity, and suicide. 
And that's obviously a very dramatic example. And I'm not aware of any megachurch pastors in our midst today, but all of us do the same thing. All of us have some place in our life that we're not functionally believing that God is in control. And anxiety is that thing that, that we, we should look at like the red light on the dashboard of our car that's showing us there's a, there's a place we're not functionally believing that God is in control. So what is that place? It could be your finances, your relationships, your health, your kids. What is that place? And God wants us to come to him and confess. We don't functionally believe he's in control of this area. But being, believing, really believing that God's in control, it's a hard thing. And this is what separates the Christian faith from, I think, every other worldview. Because Jesus isn't just asking us for an hour or two on Sunday morning. He's wanting the whole of our life. He's wanting his resurrection power to go to every aspect of our being and who we are. He wants all parts of us to be changed. And so if we want to really believe that God's in control, the first step is admitting that he's not in control. And the second step is giving him control because There are areas of our life that we know we're in control of and we're not submitting to God, but the more that we give those areas of control over to God, supernaturally, it becomes easier to believe that God is in control. But we can't ever forget that God is in control. That's the first hope. The second hope in our anxiety is that God cares. So we don't just have a God who, we have a God who is in control and cares. You know, much Many of the other worldviews, if they believe in God, they believe in a God who's maybe in control but doesn't care or someone who, a God who cares but isn't functionally in control. And Jesus is saying, we have both. And we see this in the therefore, the second therefore, in verse 31. I'm gonna read 26 to 30 because that's preceding the therefore. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And so I can imagine Jesus teaching and, and a bird just happens to fly by and he says, look at the bird. It doesn't store up all of its stuff and it's provided for. Or Look at this flower in bloom. It doesn't work. <laughs> Yet it isn't just kept alive, it's made beautiful. And you are of infinitely more value than the bird or the flower. And if we're of infinite value to God, that means he cares. He cares about us. He's in control and he cares about us. And the Bible repeatedly uses the language of a father's love to children. We're children of God. What father in this room would not want to give their child every good thing that they're going to need to be able to be fruitful and prosper and live, live out a healthy life? And the Bible says by comparison, the love that our father has for us, it makes the best father in this world seem at best uninterested. Because our father loves us, our father cares for us, and we know this. 
because the Christian God came down here in the form of the second person of the Trinity to claim his children. For our God, no cost was too great, no gap too expansive, no rebellion was too strong for him to overcome. He came here in the form of Jesus Christ to pay the penalty of our sins so that he could, he could call his children home. We can't ever doubt the love of our Father because of what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. We have a God who cares, who cares deeply for us. And if that's the case, if we have a God who is in control and a God who cares about us, then what use is worrying? And, and I know this is one of those things we all know logically that worrying isn't going to really help. I mean, when somebody, when times get tough, when somebody in the church gets sick, you know, what do we do? Do we gather around and organize a big group worry? That's, that's what's going to help, a group worry. No, we, we know that's not going to help. And when you see somebody at the end of their life and they're, they're kind of, taking stock over everything that they've done, the things that they've invested in, do you hear them say, you know, what I really regret is that I didn't invest more time in worrying. <laughs> no. Because we know at some level that this is useless. <laughs> worrying doesn't actually accomplish anything. But it reveals in us a place where the goodness of God and the control of God has not yet fully sunk in. And again, I feel like I need to pause here and I want to speak to you who really battle anxiety. And I want you to hear me say very clearly that there is freedom to be in, pro- in progress here. Okay, any, any teacher worth his salt on the, on the topic of anxiety is going to be very careful not to set the bar too low or too high. All right, I mean, we, we don't want to set the bar too low and say, well, this is just who I am. I was born a worrier. I'm wired to be a worrier. There's nothing I can do about it. We don't want to set the bar that low. But we also don't want to set the bar naively high and say, look, Jesus just said, don't be anxious. What's the problem? Because there are, as I've said, genetic and chemical and environmental issues that contribute to anxiety. So to set the bar too low is unbecoming of the power of our God. But to set the bar too high is naive of the fallen world that we live in. So we want to embrace the tension of knowing that wherever we are, there is hope in our anxiety. And that in the meantime, however long it takes to get from here to there, whether it's in this life or the next one, there is grace for all of us along the way. God will love us. He will take care of us. And when you talk about a a God who is all controlling and all caring, we're talking about what we call the doctrine of providence. And you know what the root word for providence is, right? It's right there, provide. It's provide ence. <laughs> we believe in a God who will provide. But the question that most of you are probably thinking, I'm certainly thinking, okay, but well, what is it that God's actually going to provide? <laughs> what is it that we can be sure he will provide? Well, that takes us to the third example. But before I say the third one, the third hope. You know, if there is a better, if there's a better biblical example of hope in anxiety than Peter, I haven't seen it. I mean, do you realize how often Peter worried? 
I mean, Peter was a constant worrier. He worried about the storm. He worried uh, when Jesus walked on the water. He worried about who would betray Jesus. He worried when the issue of taxes came up. He worried uh, when the soldiers came to get Jesus, even after the resurrection. He worried about what people would think when he was sitting down and, and maybe eating, or if he did sit and eat with Gentiles. We call Thomas, Thomas the doubter, but I wonder why we don't call Peter, Peter the worrier. But look at how far God brought Peter in this life when he was able to write in 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And here it is, casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Peter understood, he grasped that God has this deep care for him. And you know, watching Peter's journey as long as slow is kind of painful to read at times. But Peter gets that because we have a God who cares for us, that we can bring our anxieties to him like a child to his father. He's not saying turn it off. He's saying bring those anxieties to God. And then we get to that last question, but what is it that God's promising to provide? And our last hope So God is in control, God cares, and then finally, God is calling us to seek. God is calling us to seek. Look at what precedes our final therefore in verses 32 and 33. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So there's a word here, seek, that I don't think I've ever really appreciated the way I do now before this week because Jesus is doing something very, very intentional with this word seek. He's saying the Gentiles seek in one way, but I want you to seek in a different way. The Gentiles, they seek after things. They seek after homes and clothes and name brands and vacations and lavish parties. That's their highest ambition and that's why they're anxious. You, on the other hand, you are to seek the kingdom. You are to seek God's righteousness his kingdom coming. And then all these other things will be added to you. And this is one of those places where the prosperity movement gets it so wrong. So the prosperity movement believes that God's ultimate hope, they would look at verses like this and say, well, God's ultimate hope for you is that you'd be happy and healthy and wealthy. And, and if you're not, the reason is that you don't have enough faith or you're not seeking first the kingdom in the way that, that you should be. And there are lots of problems with, with this teaching, not least of which are the lives of the apostles, Paul, and ultimately Jesus. I mean, doesn't seem like their life was really healthy and wealthy. And when bumps come on the road for people who embrace this kind of theology, they don't have robust categories to understand what they're supposed to do. The only thing they're left to do is blame. It's someone's fault. It's either God's fault or our fault. But Jesus is clearly saying that's, that's a false understanding. There is a third way here. What Jesus is saying is actually very simple. If your highest ambition If the things that you seek are like the Gentiles, you will be anxious (laughs) because you may not get those things and ultimately those things are going away anyway. But if your highest ambition is the kingdom, then God is going to provide you everything you need to see that king and that kingdom glorified. He is going to provide you all the house, all the car, all the health, 
all the time that you will need to see that God glorified and that kingdom come. And for some of you, that's going to mean wealth because God has decided in his sovereignty that you seek first the kingdom and you're going to steward this wealth well. For others of us, that's going to mean a modest life. (laughs) You seek first the kingdom. You don't need all those other things. And for yet others, it's going to mean that we may lose everything because that's the way that we seek the kingdom and that's the way we glorify his name. And that's certainly what happened with Paul and Jesus. So it's not a promise that we're going to have all these things. It's It's a promise that we'll have everything that we need And that we won't be anxious because we will feel in the core of our being, Jesus is enough. Knowing that there is going to come a day because of Jesus Christ where we will have no anxiety. Because we will have no sin. And we will live with him in his kingdom. All right, so coming full circle. You can see why our culture is an anxious one. We we seek the things that the Gentiles do. 